You're listening to the Business of Environment podcast with Mark Roman. Welcome, everyone, to the Business of Environment podcast, where we explore insights on the intersection of business, the environment, and regulation. I'm your host, Mark Roman. Joining us today is Paul Tasner, co-founder and CEO of Pulpworks. Pulpworks was founded in response to the worldwide plastic pollution crisis, where they design and manufacture environmentally thoughtful, sustainable packaging for the consumer packaging industry. Paul's mission is to eliminate single-use plastic packaging, and he's doing so with Pulpworks' flagship product, the Cartapack which is a safe and innovative replacement for plastic blister packaging. Since its founding in 2011, Pulpworks has won 20 awards for sustainable achievement, including the Global Gifted Citizen Prize and Purpose Prize Fellow. And Pulpworks has been covered in the media on over on more than 75 occasions. Pulpworks is the capstone in a 40-year career in supply chain management for Paul. Earlier, he held leadership positions in procurement, manufacturing, and logistics in ventures ranging from startups to Fortune 100 companies. In 2008, Paul founded and continues to lead the San Francisco Bay Area Green Supply Chain Forum, the first such assembly of supply chain executives anywhere. He's authored many papers and presentations on supply chain sustainability, and currently lectures on this extremely timely topic in the MBA programs at San Francisco State University and Golden State University, as well as the Packaging Engineering Department at San Jose State University. Paul is an industrial engineering graduate from the New Jersey Institute of Technology, and he also holds a PhD in mathematics from Boston University. Paul is not only reinventing consumer packaging, but he has also reinvented himself. Paul's 2017 TED Talk on this subject matter has close to two and a half million views. Welcome, Paul, to the Business of Environment podcast. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you so much. Um, It's a a pleasure to have you on board. (laughs) It's great to be here. It's always always a little awkward to to hear someone else talk about you, but... uh, (laughs) But it, but it was very flattering. So thank you. It, it's easier to to hear people talk good things about you, though, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, please take us back to 2009, a few days before Christmas, and tell our listeners what happened and what you did. Sure, uh, my pleasure. Well, uh, we'll we'll start with the we'll start with the punchline. Uh, I was fired that day, and fired for the first time in my life, frankly. The company had uh, experienced a, a downturn um, as a result of the uh, recession of 2008, and they were uh, offloading, if you will, a number of employees at various intervals. And um, I seem to have avoided that fate for for several months, but then uh, uh, the axe finally fell on me, as well as a few other folks on that, that particular Friday. I was leaving the building, and um, the head of HR asked if I would uh, be kind enough to step into a meeting. And, you know, these things are usually carried out on Fridays. I think that's the conventional wisdom uh, when you're firing somebody. I I frankly never suspected. uh, I I shouldn't have been that naive, but I I didn't suspect that the axe would fall on me. Uh, And that was naive and probably a little arrogant. 
But uh, I was leaving the building and the woman who was the head of HR asked if I would mind popping into a meeting. And I told her that I would, um, that I was on my way to meet my wife and I hope it could wait till next week. And her whole facial expression changed and she said, you need to come to this meeting. And I, I could see, you know, something something was amiss. And I got there uh, and uh, one of the executives of the company was in the room with her. He, um, I don't even remember what he said. I don't think I was paying much attention and he couldn't wait to get out of there. Um, so I was left alone with uh, the head of HR and I happened to be eating an apple at the time. I was leaving the building with an apple in my hand and I continued to munch on the apple in my interview. And um, she looked at me and she looked at the apple and she said, uh, you're eating an apple. And I said, yeah, well, yeah, I am. <laughs> um, and she said, this is your exit interview and you're eating an apple. You know, I'm, my response was, I think, well, I'm, hung I'm hungry. And I could see that she was just really uh, taken aback that I would be that comfortable that I would munch on an apple at my exit interview. And, you know, I think there was something about that, that I, on some level, I was comfortable. On some level, I was pleased. It was the proverbial blessing in disguise. And it did work out that way, in fact. So, uh, yeah, that was my last day at the company. And um, uh, the company, by the way, uh, is a method products. It's a, a household product maker that has since merged and been acquired by other companies and no longer exists uh, as an entity unto itself. But yeah, that was it. Um, a little bit of severance and um, I was on my way and pretty, pretty excited about it, to be honest with you. <laughs> Now, what, what's key here is is many of us would have taken that news and wallowed in our sorrows, if you will. And I, I probably include myself in that category. Sure. But what did you sure. What did you do? You know, what you took this news and where did you What did you Where did you go with it? Well, the first thing I did was I met my wife and another couple of, uh, at a local restaurant, and we uh, we had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> We probably drank a little bit more than uh, than we would normally, um, but yeah, it was a lovely evening. And um, of course, when I when I apologized for being late to dinner and said that I'd just been fired, they thought that was hysterical. That that um, I, I really had to convince them that I wasn't kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know that this all sounds you know kind of amusing and all that, but I think the message here was I, I was definitely ready to leave. I enjoyed my time at the company, but things had turned turned a little sour with the downturn from the recession and a new CEO that I didn't care for very much at all. Um, the old CEO was just a magnificent gentleman and really, you know, one of the primary reasons that I joined that company. And he was let go earlier in the recession. So I wasn't pleased to be there. Probably it probably been a good year since I had enjoyed working there. So I, I was ready to go. No question about it. So after you were downsized, um, I'll, I'll use a, a little kinder term than, than fired. So yeah. at 64 years old, you're downsized. You, you yeah. dabbled a little bit in, in uh, consulting. And then at 66, you became an entrepreneur for the very first time. Correct. 
Correct. I, uh, yes, I, I had done some consulting earlier in my career. I, I'd left the job that I'd been at for 15 years, and uh, I was pretty burnt out by the time I left that job. And I decided to do some consulting. This was back in the 90s. Um, and I, I did some consulting for, I think, half a dozen years, actually. I was never quite comfortable with it, but um, but it certainly put, you know, food on the table and paid the mortgage. So I, I, you know, no complaints about that. But going back to consulting, which was my which was my first kind of knee jerk reaction to to my recent uh, dismissal, you know, I did it kind of reluctantly. Um, I had a wonderful network and a lot of contacts uh, in the U.S. and around the world, and you know, I was able to find consulting projects. But it, it, it certainly wasn't my first choice. But you know, I still had bills to pay. I live in Northern California. It's an expensive location. And, you know, I was glad to have a, a a way to continue to make a living. There's no question about that. But was it, you know, was it my ideal way to, to spend my, the, the autumn of my career or uh, uh, no, it wasn't. And as I was consulting, and I probably did it for a couple of years, I was constantly trying on for size different opportunities to establish my own business, something I'd wanted to do for many, many years and just never had the courage to do it. I just, you know, I always had a wonderful excuse, but never really had the courage. And I can't blame it on anyone but me. My wife has always been just a unqualified supporter of, of what I wanted to do career-wise. And, you know, there was no family pressure on me to hold on to these jobs that were less than satisfying. So I'd kind of run out of excuses. I knew this was this was the time to do it. Frankly, I wouldn't get another chance. So I constantly on the lookout for opportunities. And little by little, an opportunity took seed and grew. And and as you said, two years into my uh, my my retirement, I launched a business. And it's the best thing I ever did, Mark. Absolutely, the best thing I ever did. Yeah, your your TED talk is so very interesting and encouraging for those of us that are are moving into our golden age of our careers. And and again, I'm I'm including myself into that category, um, sure. because it, you know, unfortunately, our country it it you seem to be forced into this pigeonhole of you reach a certain age, you retire, you know, and, and, and that's it. And, uh, which is fine for some folks, you know, to enjoy those years, but some of us enjoy working also. And, and, uh, yeah. it's, and what's so encouraging about your Ted talk is it's never too late to reinvent yourself. And that really struck a chord with me. And I, I, uh, encourage all of our listeners to hop onto Paul's website and there's a link to his TED talk. It's, it's only a few minutes long, but it's, it's so, so entertaining. And, and the way you get your message across is, is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll have a link to that in the, in the write-up on the podcast. And the last thing I wanted to just, just mention relative to the TED talk is that, we hear so much about the need to engage our younger workforce into our businesses and to get them on board with whatever programs and policies we have at our facilities and, and get their input into how we manage items and how we 
manufacture things, which is important. I, I don't disagree with that, but very seldom do we really pay any attention or, or uh, construct a policy around our more senior workforce. I mean, there's nothing else as much as valuable as experience. Experience is, is so valuable to, to a business. And yet we don't tap into that senior workforce for, uh, you know, for that information, for that input, for that feedback. And I hope our listeners, after watching uh, Paul's TED Talk, you'll start making those changes at your own facilities and get that valuable input from, from the senior workforce. So uh, I'm off my soapbox now, Paul. I applaud you for, uh, for expressing that. And uh, obviously you and I are completely aligned on, on that yes. subject. I, <laughs> I, I just don't understand, you know, how folks with so much experience you know, have, have, well, I, I you know, I, I'll share an anecdote that I think really, uh, really underscores this, this business about an older workforce. When, when I took that last job of mine that I just described my dismissal from, I sat down with the CEO and uh, we, we had a marvelous kind of, uh, I, I hadn't been hired yet. I, it was my interview with him and we, we really seemed aligned on so many things. I was very excited about the possibility of working for him and working for that company. You know, I had already been to the offices um, in San Francisco and as, you know, kind of a modern open office environment. And I'd been introduced to a number of other key people throughout the company. And I, I said to him that, you know, I've been to the office I've met so many wonderful folks. I said, but it it's painfully obvious that I'm so much older than literally everyone there. And he said, you are, you are. And he said, you know, our average age is, is in the high 20s or low 30s. And he said, yeah, you're, you'll clearly be the oldest employee uh, by and by a long shot. And I said, and... Um, and this is fine. This is fine with you. And he said, this is more than fine with me. He said, let me ask you something. He said, you've seen our office. You've seen our staff. How many years do you think these folks are going to give me these 20 somethings and 30 somethings? And I, I said, I don't have any idea. He said, well, I'll tell you, I'll probably get a couple, three, four years maybe out of these folks and they'll be moving on climbing, climbing their, you know, millennial ladders. And um, he said, and, and that's it. He said, how many years are you prepared to give me? And I said, well, certainly more than that. And he said, exactly. He said, so in your case, I'm going to get more employment out of you. And you're bringing with you 30 years of experience. It was something none of them brought to the job at all. So why the heck wouldn't I want you? And I said, you're right. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> so we had, we had a good chuckle over it, but he was absolutely right. And I, I don't know why that attitude isn't, isn't more prevalent. I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's funny when, for example, LinkedIn is, is a great connection tool for, for folks in, you know, business and touching base with folks, keeping in touch, so on and so forth. And um, some of the connections you make, you get these notifications, like you said, every couple of years, hey, you know, 
Joe Smith's changed jobs. And you know, it's, it seems like every two years it's happening. And it's, it's, it's what happened to a, a career, you know, long-term career with, with a company. And it just doesn't really exist anymore. And it's a shame. It's, it's uh, as some of my clients that I remember walking into one, it's a, a coffee roaster. And uh, as soon as you walk in the door, prominent as you know, in everyone's face is a picture of every employee on that wall. There's about 40 to 50 of them. And the number of years that that person was with the company. And I don't think there was one person there with less than 10 years at the company. Oh, wow. That, and in fact, remarkable. exactly. And some of them were like in 30 years. And I was like, wow, like, where do you see that anymore? You know, and it, it was great to see. But, uh, you know, thank, thanks for that that feedback uh, on, on your interview there, that, that that's very valuable to, for our listeners to, to realize how important experience is. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so let's, let's jump into Pulpworks. Can you tell us yes. a little bit more about your company? Yes, I'd be delighted to. Um, we design and manufacture packaging uh, for consumer goods, but frankly, um, We've done as many things outside the field of consumer packaging as as we've done inside the field. So it, it's kind of a misnomer to say that we, you know, simply focused on the consumer goods market. But um, I, I think the best way to describe our, our technology, it's it's molded pulp or molded fiber uh, manufacturing, and listeners will be familiar with it if if they simply think about the uh, carton of eggs in their refrigerator those those egg cartons are generally molded from waste paper and and molded into those packages that you see in your refrigerator we do the very same thing uh we rarely use waste paper but but the technology is similar similar i say because um it's a it's a little more sophisticated and our packages are considerably more sophisticated than egg cartons, but the the core technology is certainly the same. In our case, we use we use the waste fibers from a lot of different uh, plants. We use uh, primarily sugarcane and bamboo, um, and those those fibers uh, create uh, a pulp, and the pulp is molded into the packages that we produce. Sugarcane creates beautiful, smooth, white, molded pulp packaging. Um, if, if you purchased an iPhone in recent years or any uh, Apple product, you generally open the box and see your laptop or your iPhone sitting in this frame of, of white, uh, which used to be plastic years ago, but Apple has you know, seen the wisdom in doing things more environmentally. Um, and and that's that's the kind of packaging that we create. Not well, I should say we we actually do create it for Apple as well. But it's molded pulp packaging, and um, our customers are generally from the electronics or the cosmetics or the food industries. But as I said, the, there are as many exceptions to that rule as there are included in the rule. So it's a, it's been an interesting journey for us because. When we started the business, uh, the intent was to build our own manufacturing facility right here in Northern California. And um, that was extremely naive on my part. I was completely taken over with the idea that we were doing something so positive, so 
jobs were uh, important at at that time. Um, the environment has always been important. Um, I, I thought we could certainly be able to raise the funds uh, from some sources to help us build this facility. And uh, we were absolutely unable to raise any money. And there were many reasons for it. You know, um, some some were completely legitimate, of course. Uh, uh, some, uh, you know, some I would take issue with. Uh, one of the reasons was I was too old. And, you know, that was that was hard to hear. I didn't have any experience as an entrepreneur. That was hard to hear, but it was legitimate. I didn't have a track record. And investors like somebody with a track record. I did have 40 years of experience, but I didn't have a track record as an entrepreneur. And the other things were, I guess, fairly obvious, but not to me. <laughs> And I was in Northern California in the heart of Silicon Valley, and there are a lot better startups to invest in in Silicon Valley than a company that's taking garbage and turning it into packaging. So most investors around here are completely mesmerized by the tech industry, and we just didn't fit the profile of the kind of investment they wanted to make. But nevertheless, we were stubborn and tried for a year to raise some money from public and private sources, and completely unsuccessful. But by that time, I was so taken with the business concept, I was determined to make it work. And I fell back on my contacts from the last 40 years and uh, reached out to other companies as our manufacturers rather than build our own manufacturing facility. And I found, I found a number of companies uh, willing and interested in working with us, uh, companies around the world. I will say this, no one in the U.S. was interested in working with us. Um, I reached out to domestic companies first as partners, companies that were already doing manufacturing of this sort for different kinds of products and projects, but um, nobody was interested in working with us. They said, you know, basically, come back when you're bigger, and we all know that uh, that's a catch-22. We're never going to get bigger if we don't get started. So right. I did uh, I did turn to some sources that I had overseas, people that I'd worked with before, and, uh, and found, uh, uh, frankly, half a dozen partners around the world that were interested in working with us. And in fact, one of those partners, uh, I guess it's fair to say my probably my premier partner, uh, by virtue of what they did, they said to me, this is going to be tough going for you at first, and it's going to be difficult in terms of cash flow. We're willing to wait for you to pay us after you've been paid by your customer. And um, I don't know when I've ever heard that expressed before. And most people that I share that with are completely shocked by the generosity of that remark. But it was generous and sincere. And it enabled us to get a start. And I probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you today if they hadn't made us that offer. And um, needless to say, I, I'm completely loyal to them and, and them to me. And uh, I do pay them now when the bills are presented rather than when I get paid. And, and we have a wonderful relationship. So it's uh, I guess one of the lessons there is don't burn your bridges because that was a bridge that I built many years ago and it came back to pay huge dividends for me today. And so that got us started. Uh, that got us started. 
We took our profits from each project and reinvested it and grew organically, slowly. And, and it's always been that way. We, we haven't uh, grown um, exponentially uh, by any means, but we have grown over the years. We've, we've been in business for 10 years. We, we've grown nicely and um, it's always been slow going, but it's always been fascinating and fun and exciting. And who could ask for more than that in, in creating, creating a business or, or a job? to have something that's fascinating, fun, and exciting. And and we're doing something for the planet on top of all of that. So I have absolutely no complaints whatsoever. And the the business has changed over the years. We, we've added um, customers that um, are well-known, uh, large customers from around the world. Uh, many of our customers come from overseas. It seems that the desire to the desire for sustainability is more in built into companies in um, different parts of the world, uh, a bit more so than here in the U.S. Although we have we have many companies that are passionate about sustainability, um, but I think I think it's it's more widespread elsewhere uh, for a number of reasons. Some of them are regulatory. In in many countries, particularly the EU. Companies don't have much choice. They they will be sustainable or or face severe penalties. We don't have that kind of pressure. Our pressure here comes basically from consumers, I would say, mm-hmm. um, and and maybe you know maybe some from local governments. But so it's it's been it's been absolutely fascinating. Excellent, excellent, and congratulations on celebrating ten years of of the business. Thank you. Uh, that's, that's, that's an achievement in itself. So, uh, congratulations on that. And, um, the couple of key words you touched upon there, which I really feel is, is extremely needed in order to have a good solid foundation for any business is trust and loyalty and the cement that you need to build the, you know, take trust and loyalty and build that great foundation, that cement is passion. And if you have those three ingredients, I think, you know, you're well on your way to building a great foundation for a business. And, and you, you, you have, you have them. Yeah, you have them with, with pulp works. Let's, let's talk a little bit uh, more specifically about car to pack itself. Right. And what, what, what are the problems with you know, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with this and and some may not be, you know, what's the problem that you see with plastic packaging? And, you know, what, what's, you, you, this car to pack sounds like a great solution. Give us to, to the plastic problem and give us a little bit more on car to pack and, and yeah. how that's resolving some of these issues. Sure, sure. Well, to begin, and I wish it were true, it hasn't been the overwhelming success that that one might uh, have taken away from your introduction. It, it should be, but it hasn't been. And, and I'll explain what the challenges are. I think everyone, anyone who's ever walked down the aisle at Walgreens or, or CVS, uh, particularly some of the um, cosmetics and things of that nature, I mean, virtually everything is packaged in a what what we call plastic blister packaging, um, you know it's it's that typical cardboard sheet uh, with the branding and the graphics, 
and then the the item itself captured inside a plastic bubble that you can see you know that you take to the checkout counter and 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 by the way mark i mean you know from a long history in the consumer packaged goods business i i am well aware of the virtues of plastic packaging I'm, there are many, many, and countless plastic packages that are important and needed, et cetera. I'm talking here about single-use disposable plastic packaging that is, you know, toxic in our environment. That plastic packaging that can be replaced without any danger to the product or, or the consumer or the manufacturer. And these blister packs are just ideal examples of this single-use disposable plastic packaging. What's the first thing you do when you get one of these blister packs home? First of all, it, you know, hopefully it'll be easy to open. We have a video on our website of, of, of Larry David opening a plastic blister pack on, on uh, one of his uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm shows where he's having so much trouble that he starts taking knives out of the kitchen drawer and <laughs> literally attacking this package. And you're half expecting him to cut his fingers off in the, in the clip. But if you can open it, what, what do you do? You, you, you toss it out. You toss it in the garbage. For many years, those blisters were made of PVC. Nobody recycles PVC. Now they're hopefully uh, either PET um, or, or some other plastic and hopefully recycled if they are PET. But I don't think most consumers are even sensitive to, you know, what the plastic resin is, is in use here. And they just throw it away. It's single use and it's, it's a waste and it's a, it's a blight. So we developed a very simple replacement for it. Our blister, so to speak, is not clear. Of course, it's not plastic, but our blister goes on the back of this package, the, the same package that holds your whatever it is, tube of lip balm or something on the front of the package. Our blister goes on the back of the package and the lip balm is inside our blister. And our blister is typically made of uh, sugar cane or something. Um, and then we have a small cutout uh, window on the front of the package so that you can see the item that's inside the blister. Um, this is ideal for, for cheap cosmetics and uh, other inexpensive items that are, you know, the, the typical target of blister packaging. The problem and the huge challenge of wider adoption for us is that blister packaging is usually associated with cheap items. You know, it's, it's the, the tube of lipstick or mascara or, or the or the school supplies or something. They're generally very inexpensive items. And inexpensive items cannot afford expensive packaging. In fact, they, they can barely afford any packaging. And sadly, our packaging is more costly than plastic blister packaging. It's not more costly by any more than a penny or two. But a penny or two, when you're selling millions of cosmetics or whatever it is, a penny or two is a pretty huge difference. In fact, um, head of packaging at L'Oreal said to me many years ago when we, we called on her uh, to show our package that personally she thought it was fabulous, that it was high time that the industry replaced all the plastic packaging. But she said, 
I honestly can't replace my packaging with what you're suggesting if you're more than a tenth of a penny higher than what I'm using today. And my, you know, my heart sunk because I, I knew we were well more than a tenth of a penny higher. But that's what we're up against. And as a result, you know, we don't really go after those inexpensive $399 or $899 items. We target much more expensive items where the cost of packaging, where, you know, an additional penny or two or three can be absorbed by the budget for that item. Uh, Can't be absorbed in the budget for a tube of lipstick or mascara, but it can for an electronic item or, you know, anything else that's, you know, you know, above $30 or something like that. It can be absorbed. Now, then there's a, there's another group of customers that are comfortable with paying the upcharge for sustainable packaging. And those are the people that are passionate about the environment. Those are the, you know, the so-called Patagonias of the world that won't compromise on price for for sake of the environment but sadly mark they are in the minority yeah it uh, i i've uh, worked on environmental issues for consumer packaging firms uh for about 30 years and the one thing and, and you touched upon this in what you just talked about i remember being a young consultant and uh we were working in a a um, at a site for a major household cleaner manufacturer uh yeah and and i remember it was walking through the warehouse and a forklift accidentally hit this big stack pallets of uh household cleaner broke the containers open it spilled all over the place and uh you know the person the manager we were walking through the warehouse with you know ushered us away to to a place so they can address the uh the spill of this cleaner material. And I was like, oh man, that's that's a shame. All that cleaner just going to waste. And he says, it's not the cleaner, the product I'm worried about. It's all of the the packaging, the cont- plastic containers we lost now, because that costs more than the, the product that, that we make that's in there is, is the plastic right. container costs more than that. So I was just amazed at that uh, when that was brought to my attention. And uh, um, yes, yes. One thing that I'm I'm finding as time goes on is a company is is not only held responsible for you know the products that they make and the services that they provide, but also the packaging that they use for their products. And and you touched upon this also that you know it's not necessarily from a regulatory pressure, but a consumer pressure. But I think that's also starting to change now. I, I right this morning um, I received an email uh, from a regulatory uh, server that sends out notices every so often. And and here in New Jersey, they just passed a regulation to to limit the use of plastic straws. Uh, you can't use them anymore unless they're specifically asked for. So now, you know, that's that's got to change. So, so I think that regulators are starting to come more and more involved with the usage of plastic in certain the single use plastic, as you mentioned in certain situations. So yeah, with that in mind, where, you know, you know, companies now have to pay more attention to the packaging they use. Um, Can you provide a couple of examples on, on how you were able to help out companies with, with some of their packaging issues? Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, 
I mean, you know, the packages that we create, I guess, fall into two categories. Uh, one is that they're they're brand new. They're for some they're for something new. A company is introducing a new product into the marketplace, and they'd like the packaging to be uh, very sustainable. The other category is a company has a product in the marketplace in a package that is not sustainable, and they want to make a change. So, I mean, I, I think those those two categories, you know, basically describe all of our customers. And you know, I never I never added up the tally on both sides, but I, I would imagine that you know it's it's fairly balanced. Well, I think one that I'm that I'm quite proud of is uh, we have a, a European customer in Denmark, Novo Nordisk. They're the, I believe, the world's largest manufacturer of uh, uh, insulin for diab- diabetes, and they they do some other important drugs as well. We created a, a tray, and our, our kind of technology, molded pulp technology, is really best used for creating items like trays. Um, and when you, when you open an egg carton, when you open an egg carton is, I guess we'd call a clamshell, but when you open that clamshell completely, you basically have a large tray. And a molded pulp is at its best when it's creating trays, something that's very open on one side. And so Novo Nordisk has an internal tray that moves vials of uh, product throughout their system. And um, they were doing this with um, plastic trays. And um, we've created a tray for them made from uh, sugarcane, or we call it bagasse, sugarcane waste. It's completely compostable and recyclable. And they are now starting to use that tray to move those vials through their system. And um, it's just begun, but uh, it's um, it's been adopted with a lot of fanfare, and uh, I think we've been nominated for a, you know kind of a new vendor of the year award, uh, along with other some other vendors, of course. And it's it's just been marvelous uh, for them as well as for us. So I'm, I'm proud of that. You know, I'm proud to say that one of the world's largest pharmaceutical manufacturers is uh, you know is trying to be more sustainable about the way they run their their business and their supply chain. And I'm proud to say that they've chosen Pulpworks to help them do that. So um, that that's one example, I guess, uh, if I'm sitting here tooting my own horn. Um, <laughs> as an example of a new product, not replacing something, there's a, a famous Hollywood makeup artist. I, I, won't, I, won't, I don't know that her name will mean that mean anything to you know laymen like us but um but she is a famous hollywood makeup artist and um she uh she has decided to uh, develop her her own line of color cosmetics but for the film industry not for retail sale uh, she had you know different choices about um kind of the if you will the palette uh that she would use for these uh different uh color cosmetics and, um, you know, after a lot of testing, et cetera, et cetera, she's decided to use molded fiber. And again, we're using sugarcane in her case. We're, we're using molded fiber for this palette uh, that the makeup artists will use as they're doing their work, um, you know, on film sets and TV sets, et cetera. 
I guess, you know, she could have easily gone with something plastic or can't imagine what else she might have used, but usually plastic is the knee-jerk choice of, of too many people, uh, and, and but she didn't want to do that. She chose something sustainable, and I really applaud her for that. Of course, I hope she's, I hope her product is a great success throughout throughout the film industry uh, with makeup artists. Here, here's I guess an in- interesting example. In, in a way, it, it's not one in which we were successful, but I'll explain why. We were selected to do some packaging for home appliances. We were involved in a in a contest, I guess, uh, among different packaging companies to uh, develop packaging, sustainable packaging, for the Electrolux company. Um, and most people are familiar with the Electrolux name. They're one of the world's largest appliance manufacturers. Their uh, headquarters are in Sweden, but their manufacturing headquarters are in Italy. And they uh, they basically threw down the gauntlet and said, we need to move away from styrofoam packaging. I guess um, when you think about it, whenever you, in the past, whenever you've bought a large appliance, you know, uh, be that a toaster or microwave or, you know, God knows what, when you lifted it out of the carton that it came in, it usually was surrounded by styrofoam cushioning, which, of course, did the job. Unfortunately, you know, it's expanded polystyrene and you couldn't have picked a worse, you know, chemical. So Electrolux's largest customer, which is IKEA, it's their single largest customer in the world. IKEA has decided they don't want styrofoam packaging in their warehouses anymore. And they've told all of their suppliers, get rid of styrofoam from the way you package your appliances and ship to us. So Electrolux, um, I guess when IKEA speaks, everybody listens. (laughs) Electrolux challenged us with creating packaging for some of their appliances that could replace the styrofoam that they were using. Unfortunately, they gave us the hardest example to begin with, the very hardest example, and that is a refrigerator, something that weighs over 200 pounds. And we were not successful in replacing the styrofoam. And when I say we were not successful, we had to pass five different drop tests. So you can imagine dropping a 200-pound refrigerator from, a, I think that it was a 24-inch height, um, and there were five different drops. It's a challenge. And styrofoam was up to the challenge. Molded fiber wasn't. But I will say this. We succeeded in four of the five drop tests. It was the final and fifth drop test where we failed. But it was a failure because of that. And we were not able uh, to replace the styrofoam. And Electrolux went back to the drawing board. And in fact, that's where they are now at the drawing board. And hopefully their their next challenge to us will be something a little lighter than a 200-pound refrigerator, <laughs> and we will be successful. But I think it's an, it, it, it's an instructive story because, you know, it, it tells you a little bit about the supply chain and the packaging and the position that, cut, that companies are taking and, um, and what they're trying to do to, to meet these challenges, you know, be they pressure from their customers or regulatory pressure or both. And, um, you know, we sure got a firsthand look at it. And 
I wish we'd been able to beat that drop test, but uh, but we were not, and that's uh, um, unfortunate. But um, I, I have uh, I have I have hopes for more opportunities with Electrolux. And in fact, we were we were quoting on a project recently, and the customer was a little concerned because of the weight of the item that he wanted packaged. And I I said um, I said well you know. We passed four out of five drop tests with a 200-pound refrigerator. I, I think we can handle your 25-pound product pretty nicely. <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, I, I, I think that's not going to be a problem." So <laughs> I guess we, I guess there were some uh, added benefits uh, that we didn't expect, unintended benefits that we didn't expect uh, from that uh, that failed experience. But you know, things are. Things are moving in the right direction around the world here domestically and, and overseas. It's just that they're moving slowly. That just seems to be the pace at which most things move slowly, unfortunately. And, you know, we've, we've accepted it and uh, we do our best to work with it. The way I look at it also is you know, more efficient and sustainable packaging really results in less generation of wastes, you know, that you have to dispose of. And, yes. and the benefit there is less generation of waste results directly in reducing your liabilities and exposures when it comes to waste disposal. You know, you're exactly, and, exactly. And, and Mark, you're, you know, that's a, that's an incredibly important point because in Europe, not here yet, they have what well, I'm sure you're well aware of extended producer responsibility, EPR. And that company that company is responsible for the cost of waste disposal, and when they're when they're dumping tons and tons of polystyrene into the waste stream, they are paying for that one way or another. They are paying for that by regu- you know regulatory guidelines. So it is in their best interest, profit wise, to have sustainable waste, to have waste that is recyclable or biodegradable. And not you know the toxic waste that's going to live on our planet for 400 years. So there's a real, real strong incentive to improve the, their waste stream. And um, you know eventually extended producer responsibility will 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 reach our shores as well. You know probably state by state the way most things work here. But it's an important feature. It's it's a very important feature. Yeah. Yeah. Um... One of the uh, most significant issues we're seeing today is is our ongoing supply chain problems. And with your your experience, your background, your knowledge of this, I would really love to know, and I'm sure our listeners would love to know, is what's your feelings on what's going on now, and what do you see as the root cause and a potential solution to resolve this mess we're in right now? And by this mess, I mean, are you you're referring to the the lack of uh, strong regulation around waste? Uh, are you, or are just the su- supply chain? Just, uh, oh, 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 supply okay. chain okay. issue. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right. Yes. Yeah. I'm I'm keeping track of several messes that were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I I keep getting told by my partners overseas that you know, this, this too shall pass. Um, and, you know, they've been saying that for months and, you know, and I trust, I trust them, but um, boy, it's, if anything looks like it's here to stay, it, it, this mess, as you said, certainly 
looks like it. Um, I don't know how we can afford for it not to be resolved because the cost of shipping from overseas is is just astronomically more than it was before this mess. I mean, mm-hmm. astronomically more. And uh, I don't know how every, everyone will be able to survive if, if that isn't you know temporary and yeah and we go back to go back to a more competitive environment i i had a quote from a shipping company on a shipment of goods that would probably probably be you know somewhere in the 2000 to 2500 dollars uh, to ship this mind you this wasn't a full container or even a, a small container i mean this was simply a number of pallets of product but the the quote that I received, and I got multiple quotes because I couldn't believe it, was $20,000 for what was a $2,000 load not too long ago. I, I know that that's just incredible to, to hear, but that, that's what we're looking at. And it's just, it's just insane. And I don't know how it can continue without something breaking, something serious. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding with clients... Um just the whole management style of everything from maintenance, you know, through manufacturing, through uh, environmental health and safety, managing all of that is, is significantly affected now. I mean, there, there's no, you know, just in time inventory management, forget about that, (laughs) you know, because you don't know when you're going to get something now and uh, if you're going to get it. So uh, it's, it's affecting everything uh, from top to bottom and bottom to top. It's, it's just amazing. You know, it's, it's finally catching on, I think, in the news where the general consumer is starting to see it because now, you know, recently it was, you know, we may not get all these toys we want to get for Christmas, you know, in time. So people are starting to recognize this now. But how long has this been going on, in your opinion, that there is this supply chain problem? Yes, since the summer. I'm trying to remember when I first noticed it. Um, yeah, I guess I guess this summer, really. Yeah, yeah, probably uh, sometime during the summer. I can't pin it down any more than that. But because uh, er, er, early on, uh, after the initial shock, you know, you would hear that um, this this should be cleared up by early next year, which seemed you know really far off at that time. But here, what we're we're pretty much coming up to early next year very soon. So I, I hope that's still going to be true. I know that certain things have been done to, you know, inc- increase um, the work done at ports around the world, you know, um, extra hours, weekend hours. And I, I can't imagine they weren't doing this already, but I guess they weren't. But something to, to move product more quickly through the system and get back to the way things were earlier on but uh yeah it's pretty uh it's pretty discouraging pretty discouraging yeah i i encountered it for the first time i guess back in april oh I wow needed, i i needed a, a a real simple air blower for a treatment system and this is a typical off the shelf unit from granger you know uh you call them up tell them hey i need item number blah 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 and you'll have it the next day you know and it took me two and a half months to get it. And um, I was calling all over. And if Granger doesn't have it, you know, 
the pretty big supply house. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, you're, yeah. you're, you're not going to find it anywhere. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, in the past, you know, if I needed, needed that exact unit, I would call on a Thursday afternoon and, you know, Friday morning, it's, it's at the office. So it's, uh, it's, it's just amazing. But uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully by we're going to work our way through it and, and, and um, come out, you know, beginning of the year, a little bit more in better shape. Yeah. Uh, Paul, what's, what's your number one piece of advice to a company who is looking at packaging challenges and, and they're, they're looking at the, you know, better position themselves essentially with their con- consumers and their competitors by reevaluating packaging. Uh, what's your number one ad- piece of advice for them to be relative to that? We hear from companies that that think they need to do better, and they're actually doing really they're actually doing all the right things. You know, the mm-hmm. molded molded fiber has a good reputation as being recyclable and compostable, et cetera. So, you know, in in some cases, people think it's sort of the you know the the go-to solution for environmental issues in packaging, but cardboard and corrugated. I mean, I mean, these are all sustainable solutions. I, I don't think there's any corrugated box made today that it, you know, it doesn't use recycled materials either partially or completely. It's been a while since I've been in a box plant, but you know, so I mean, you're certainly doing the right thing by choosing a corrugated solution or. Or even a cardboard solution, you know, if you're using recycled content uh, in your cardboard, it, it's just it's just the plastic packaging. I mean, do you do you really need plastic packaging for whatever it is you know you're looking to package? And um, and certainly, you know, if you're if you're thinking of blister packaging, there are alternatives. I, I, I guess I made that pretty clear. Right. But um, I guess the most Im- the most important thing I would say. Is something that we run up against all of the time, and I'm, I'm guessing that other businesses do as well. Um, these these decisions are in large companies. These decisions are often made by specialists. You know, whether they're in purchasing or R and D or uh, operations, and it's really hard to make a choice of one type of packaging versus another, looking only at the cost of that package. Every choice you make has many ramifications for your business, and they go well beyond the packaging budget. As we just said, I mean, if you if you make the choice of of using styrofoam, I mean, that's going to come back and bite you economically at some point in time, and that's not necessarily part of the packaging budget, but it's still going to hurt your company financially. So I would advocate for looking at these choices in a more you know larger sense in a more global sense to see what the real cost to your company is or what the real benefit to your company is like you know the that woman that told me that she couldn't choose my package if it was one tenth of a penny more than she was paying for her plastic blister pack do you really think that we couldn't make up that one tenth of a penny somewhere else in her you know corporate budget you really think we we couldn't make up that one tenth of a penny by increasing her customer base because she was now a more sustainable company and attracting, you know, attracting a whole new group of customers uh, that were, you know, 
focused on sustainability and didn't want to buy products from a company that didn't care about sustainability. I think it's been proven that companies that are more sustainable and and more public about their sustainability, they hold on to their employees longer. You were talking about the coffee company and the longevity of their workforce. People like working for a company that's doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it's you know it's been it's been well documented that companies that are more sustainable and public about their sustainability they hold on to their workforces longer. And employee turnover is costly to a company. I'm sure that one tenth of a penny could be made up in many different ways in that company. But she was just looking at our package and her package. And we just didn't make the grade. But I, you know, I would so much appreciate it if companies looked at the bigger picture when they're making packaging choices, whether it's molded pulp or whatever it is. Look at the ramifications throughout your business for the choice that you're making. Don't just look at mine and his and, you know, the one cent that they differ. It's so much of a bigger picture than that. Yeah, we. Sorry, that was that was me on my soapbox. <laughs> no problem. Um, I'll give you an example of of uh, a couple of years ago. We we were doing some work for a, a medical device company where they were shipping the devices, and it, it could be the entire device or it could be small pieces of the of the device, like a spare part. And they were shipping it directly to the patients that were using them. And the problem they were having was they were getting this negative feedback from the folks that were receiving these packages because they would get a cardboard box, you know, that you can fit a six pack of beer in, for example. But the only thing in there was maybe a half a dozen lithium batteries, you know, small lithium batteries or something like that. And, you know, they're getting these this feedback from the consumer. What a waste of material here. What are you doing? And the problem... The problem the company had is they didn't have enough space to store all these different sizes of potential cardboard boxes for what they were shipping out. You know, the device could be a very large device, a small device. So they didn't have that room. And they, they really liked the idea of the cardboard package yet. They, I, I, I don't know if they even looked at something, you know, that pulp works puts together, but what they ended up doing, and 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 they looked at this from your standpoint of what's the long-term benefit here for us, is they invested money in a, a machine that takes cardboard stock and it cuts the size box that it needs for that particular product. So they have it all yeah. codified and everything. So, and, and I think Amazon does something similar to this, but and it's re- it was a really great solution. Did it cost, you know, it was a capital investment up front that, you know, they weren't expecting, but they all they have now from all of their consumers is positive feedback. Hey, this is great, you know, what you did here, you know, and they, they capitalized it on it as, as corporate responsibility, sustainable packaging, you know, earth-friendly, so on and so forth. And, and uh it, it, it was a really great success story for them. And, uh, you know, they they took what your advice was here and saying, you know, look at long-term benefits here, not just the short-term, and, and, and you're going to come out well ahead. Yes, yes, exactly. 
Well, Paul, on a personal note, can you share with our audience an interest or hobby that you enjoy doing with your free time? <laughs> um, yes, and 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 by the way, I I, uh, I do have plenty of free time. The uh, the company doesn't monopolize every waking hour of my day. Um, <laughs> I I tend to focus on the early morning hours, and then uh, you know throughout the day, you know, responding to the the occasional um, message, et cetera, et cetera. But I certainly have plenty of personal time available. And uh, and that's by design. I, I mean, um, you know, our business runs rather smoothly, and um, I, I feel like I feel like I have a more uh, a balanced life, I guess. Um, what what do I like to do? Well, um, I've always been involved in sports and recreation of one sort or another, but that that's becoming less and less as I get older and less less flexible, <laughs> to to use a word. Um, but I, you know, I still enjoy, uh, spectator being a spectator. I'm, I'm a, I'm a baseball fan and, uh, and a basketball fan and maybe a little football, but mostly baseball and basketball. So I'm excited about the world series. Uh, not as excited as I would have been if the Yankees had been in the world series, but, uh, <laughs> that, that, that's a different story. I've always been a, um, a stamp and coin collector. Um, and so I spend a little bit more time doing that now, which is, you know, kind of an ideal recreation for someone who's lost their flexibility. Um, <laughs> my wife and I are, are, are huge movie fans. I guess most of that is now satisfied by Netflix rather than going to the theater. But I think uh, slowly but surely theaters will return and people will have that in theater experience. I, I like to travel, but I don't like the process of traveling. So I like I like being in places, but I don't like getting there. Um, it's it's um, so I'll I'll be a huge fan of uh, telekinetics once it's refined. Uh, we um, and I love I love my family. I have four grown kids, and and they have kids, and um, I love being with them. And that's taken a back seat also to the pandemic. But uh, slowly but surely, that's that's changing as well. Uh, one of my sons is uh, involved involved in the packaging business as well, uh, quite accidentally or coincidentally. But it's fun to talk about packaging with him. But he was smarter. He he got involved in the beverage industry, particularly brew the uh, breweries. So um, he gets to package fun stuff to drink. So. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm not a golfer. I've never been a golfer and uh, don't intend to become a golfer. And um, growing up, um, sports were always baseball, football, and basketball. So I never really developed an interest in anything else, you know, tennis or golf or anything like that. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess I'm uh, all of that. And I, I, I do try to walk as much as, as I can. Uh, my wife's become a little fanatic about getting in the number of steps each day that that is supposed to guarantee good health so we find ourselves walking quite a bit um and that's that's a great thing of course yeah absolutely well paul i want to thank you very much for taking the time to join us today if uh people want to get in touch with you how would they do that well um you know in many different ways uh, uh, our go to our website which is pulpworks inc 
www.thepodcastmarketingmyth.com. There's a there's a contact page there. Uh, LinkedIn, they can find me on LinkedIn, Paul Tasner, T-A-S-N-E-R. Go to the TED website, which is ted.com, and just do a search on my name and, and my TED Talk will pop up. I, I'm I'm really easy to find. <laughs> I'm not hiding from anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Paul, and 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 thank you everyone for listening to the, to today's show. And until we share some time together again, everyone, please stay safe and be well. Thanks. The Business of Environment podcast is sponsored by Envision Environmental. Do you have environmental gorillas hiding in plain sight at your facility? Chances are you do, and you don't even know it. Discover how to assess your environmental, health, and safety risks, and protect yourself from fines and liabilities before there's trouble. Download a free copy of our book, Overlooked, Hunting the Invisible Environmental Gorilla, at envisionenvironmental.com slash free book.